Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Paul Singh. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Tada Cognitive Solutions. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've done a ton of stuff, and I'm really fascinated to learn more about everything that Tada is doing. But before we get into all that, Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Uh, so, you know, um, I mean, a lot of times people ask me where do I uh, grow up and then immediately they ask me the next question, where did I spend my, uh, you know, uh, my time? So I have spent probably sure. the longest time in Silicon Valley. Okay, very um, cool. And uh, so to some extent that's home. Uh, while I was born and grew up in got all my education in uh, India. I grew up in Delhi and, you know, uh, that's where I went to engineering school and then came to the U.S. to uh, do my master's and started in Louisiana. Okay. Uh, so, sorry, before you dive into that, what made you want to go into engineering? Um, so I think I, I wouldn't say that I had some great visions, but it was more like in in the days of while I was growing up, uh, you know, there were two professions that people went to when they did well in school. Okay. And uh, one was to go into medicine and the other one was to go into engineering. Interesting. Okay. And I knew that I could not be a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that out of curiosity? I hated blood. So. Ah, I'm the same way. I get it. 100% get it. Okay, keep going. Sorry. So, in fact, they put me in the class uh, to study biology yeah. because automatically it was decided, hey, you have more marks, so you go in there. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. And then <laughs> they said, you got to get your parents to write us a note that you actually don't want to be in biology. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up in engineering. Interesting. Okay, keep going though through your journey. So you you go get your master's in Louisiana. Actually, I didn't finish in Louisiana. I started in Louisiana. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, as the luck had it, and there was no scholarship available in summer, and I didn't have the money to pay for it because you know my scholarship used to pay four hundred dollars a month, and three eighty was my expense. So with twenty dollars uh, for ten months, I didn't have enough savings to last through the summer. Interesting. Um, okay. So I had to make a decision wow. of what to do. Sure. Uh, so I knew somebody, uh, one of the relatives in New York, and I approached them and they said, yeah, sure, come on by. And uh, so I stayed with them, worked in their uh, business, in fact, helped them put together the first uh, computer system in the business and uh, then decided to stay back in New York. And uh, so I finished my master's in New York, actually. Okay, fascinating. So you get out of school, 
walk us through your journey maybe just some highlights along the way because you've done a ton of stuff but i i definitely want you to cover the mentorship kind of the the teaching aspect um and then kind of some of the jobs you've had along the way so you know my first job uh, uh, after i graduated um was in san francisco okay and... how'd you get that just out of curiosity <laughs> Uh, you know, there, there's a thing called classified uh, that yeah. uh, used to happen in the newspapers these days. And it was like the smallest possible ad I saw in New York Times. Wow. And I was like, you know, I don't know, but let me apply anyway. What the heck? And uh, I got a call from somebody and, you know, they talked to me and then they said, oh, by the way, uh, this uh, job is in San Francisco. Do you have any yeah. problems with it? I'm like, no, I would love to know what that place is like. So sure. Amazing. So you'd never been. No, I've never been. moved. I, mean, I, I have only been by this time. I had only been in the South and then in New York City. Fascinating. OK, keep going. Sorry to keep interrupting you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. But so then I came here for the interview, loved the place, uh, got a job designing uh, electrical systems for the railways. Okay, uh, which was not something I studied in for my MBA, but it was what I studied in my engineering. So I had to become an engineer again for a while. And that's where I realized that, hey, I think I'm in a wrong industry, construction industry, and this is not the future. The future is what's happening down south about 30 miles, 40 miles away from me. And um, so that's when I decided, hey, I got to go move to Silicon Valley. And Interesting. Got okay. my first job there in 3Com Corporation, which was the you know leading networking company of that era. And I just moved to Silicon Valley. Okay, fascinating. So how did you get that job? Did you just apply or walk us through that? So, you know, um, while working at this company, I actually became the person who would write all the computer simulation software. Oh, fascinating. So, because there was nobody there who was, who was doing that. So I used my background of writing basic and Fortran, the two languages that I had learned at that time. And so developed some programs to uh, run on the computer. I mean, in those days, you know, there was no even DOS yet. Uh, we right. used to run on a, um, we used to run on a, uh, you know, the CPM operating system computers and stuff. So I wrote some programs. So we automated a lot of stuff. And then when, uh, you know, I knew of a friend who worked at 3Com and he said, oh, yeah, I think we're looking for lots of people. So why don't you give me a resume? And uh, I got interviewed for uh, running a developer program inside of 3Com. Cool. And so that was my uh, beginning in Silicon Valley. And, you know, never looked back and loved every moment of it. And so stayed in that part and, you know, worked for, I'd say, about 10 plus years in various companies, all the way from 3Com to sun microsystems to telebit and so on and then it was a time to say hey you know i need to do something different okay and um so i i've always been kind of thinking about i need to do you know um so i started out as a consultant uh working for a couple of companies uh 
And, uh, but I felt that, hey, you know, as a consultant, I can only have so many hours. And then once the hours are over, I can't do much except for optimizing or increasing my fees. Right. And increasing the fee is not really viable beyond a point. Um, so let's build something. And so I was lucky I'd gotten a team that I'd worked with that challenged them to a problem that I had discovered uh, was there when internet was coming in that, hey, people are going to have a problem in how to connect to internet securely. And so uh, we focused on one segment first, which was the old netware segment that existed. You know, netware had almost 70, 80% market share in those days. Right. Uh, so we tried to fix that problem. And that's what my first startup did uh, called Internetware. Okay. So walk us through how that played out. So I think that played out really well for a first company um, because, uh, you know, we made some great progress. We built some customer traction, started to sell the product. And um, we were in the midst of having a term sheet as well as a couple of acquisition offers at the same time. Awesome. And so we decided, uh, you know, because most of the founders have never actually uh, seen an exit, <laughs> let alone done a company yet. So we were all, you know, thinking, okay, you know, at least this is a sure thing versus let's take the money and build it. And so we went in the direction of saying, okay, let's take the acquisition offer. And so we ended up, um, you know, uh, selling the company and joining um, what was uh, at that time called Quarterdeck that got bought by Symantec. And now, of course, Symantec is bought by somebody else, but yeah. Sure, so, very cool. Okay, so keep keep on your, your journey because this is, it's interesting. Okay. So I think after that, um, you know, I did another uh, startup sort of, uh, you know, continuing in the security space. Um, but it was, you know, it, we worked on it for about two to three years. We ended up selling it. It was an okay exit. Um, but th then it was sort of time for me to say, you know what, I know how to build small companies. Why don't I try to build something that will last beyond me? Okay, interesting. And so when I thought about it, I had to figure out, hey, is there a big problem I'm going to solve? Um, even though we thought the first problem we were solving was big, and it really was, but we just, you know, I guess bailed out too soon. Um, and so the big problem that we saw and opportunity we saw is that the market was changing from the old, you know, circuit switch environments of telecom to packet switched environment. Okay. I.e. the voice in those days, you know, having voice travel over IP was challenge. Today we assume video travel over IP as a normal thing. <clears throat> and so we said, why don't we enable that? And, uh, you know, the telecom industry was deregulating. So it was a great opportunity to sort of get into that market. Um, but I also felt that this was a time if I am going to do this company, I have to go and recruit a team of people that have the same goal as me, that they are really looking for, they want to build a large company and really be in that journey with me. Um, and so we got, you know, basically three of us 
started this company and uh, we built uh, voice over IP switch for the operators. Oh, interesting. So I think that journey, I'll, I'll give you a couple of highlights of that journey because that's, sure. you know, we, we, some of those might be related to the times we are, we're just entering these days. Um, so we were kind of in the go-go years when we raised our first round. Um, okay. You know, it was the internet uh, dot-com boom was like coming. And so we were part of the dot-com boom and we were doing really amazingly well by that measure. Um, because we had raised a lot of money, we had hired a, a lot of people, we had built, you know, distributed teams in Dallas and in, uh, you know, in San Jose and elsewhere, and money was no object. And we had, um, you know, a lot of customer traction, uh, and uh, we were trying to look for a mezzanine round to go public. Okay. And then came the giant uh, dot-com bust uh, with 9-11, uh, sort of the last coffin in the nail. Uh-huh. And suddenly the you know financing environment froze. Nobody wanted to fund anything. People who had multiple purchase orders froze them. In fact, we had already committed more than half the round for our next round. Uh, before going public and most of the investors backed out. Wow. So we were left with uh, a pretty dire situation to say the least. Sure. Okay. So um, keep going. Sorry. So I think that was a, I still remember that it was a very uh, difficult day uh, for all of us. Uh, and also, it was kind of our first experience when um, we finally sat down with our investors and they said, you know what, there are a lot of our companies which we have no problem in shutting down. But, you know, you guys have actually built an amazing amount of technology. You have customer traction. So we want to keep you alive. We want to fund you. Wow. However, we can't afford the burn of 180 people. Okay. Can you come up with a plan with 60 people? Wow. It was like, oh my God, how? So we had to actually kind of go back and say, okay, what is it that I'm not going to do first? If I don't have the money, here are the things that I had so many initiatives that I had started. Let's first figure out what initiatives I'm not going to do. So that kind of gave us a good, you know, 60 to 100 people that, you know, I know I can live without. Wow. That's got to be a hard call, though. Oh, it was really tough. You know, the last 10 people of who goes on this side versus that side, none of us slept. For sure. Wow. Right. And everybody was negotiating. Oh, no, this person is better. No, that person is better. No, we cannot do this. No, we cannot do this. Right. Right. In the end, we had to make a call. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's a very sobering moment. And uh, the good news is we did that. And uh, we raised money. And along the way, we ended up 
buying another company out of Israel. And we built, rebuilt the business. And wow. in 2007, we went public. Interesting. Okay. So it had a very happy ending. Long 10-year journey, but a good result. Sure. So you've been through pretty much every high, low, and everything in between that you can go through because you see you sold companies, but I think also just having to build a big company, lay off a bunch of people, and then still IPOing, right? Yeah. We were 450 people when we IPOed. Okay. Interesting. Very, very cool. So maybe quickly walk us through the rest of your journey, maybe some of the, the teaching stuff you've done, and then I want to dive into what you're doing today. So, you know, um, after that, I decided that it was time for me to move on because okay. I had spent 10 years. So I had already told the board when we were going public that I don't want to be a Section 8 officer. Okay. And in fact, all three of us uh, were not going to be part of the team moving forward. They, you know, one of the founders had already moved on. And the other founder and I, we both made a decision that, hey, we need to try something new. We've sure. done this enough, so we are going to move on. But we had a good team in place, so we just moved on. Um, and uh, I mean, a co company did well for a while, and then unfortunately, they tried to they sold the company to uh, or merged the company with somebody, which was, I think, a disaster and something I would have not approved of. But anyway, uh, things happen. Um, sure. So I, I had, I wish that the company would be alive today, but unfortunately it's not alive today in that form for sure. It's now part of some PE firm and so on. So where I, I say normally companies go to die. Um, so why, why do you say that out of curiosity? I, I agree with you, but. Uh, you know, I mean, I think there are, uh, you know, I think there are new models now, but in the olden days it was pretty, simple that you know somebody just wanted to get suck the cash out of the system so that way they never lose money and when you suck so much cash out of the system you just make company pay for the debt so much that even if the company was going to survive it just doesn't get to survive i see i mean i think the new crop of a lot of pe firms are way smarter and much more you know trying to focus on the growth but in the olden days that was not the case got it makes sense so then i uh, joined another uh startup that i had uh, also done some funding on and you know uh, we were we were a little too early in the market and we didn't we didn't make it and so it was a kind of a rude awakening after saying i'm coming out of the success and then suddenly you see a failure um, right so I think it's, um, you know, it kind of sobers you up. Sure. <laughs> and you learn uh, what you did right and what you didn't do right and so on. So I think that was, a, uh, that was uh, you know, not a, was a good experience, but not a great outcome. Uh, even though we did build a lot of customer traction and so on, but we just couldn't monetize it. Interesting. Okay, keep going. And this was where, you know, a lot of it, we were kind of, we were doing a mobile app before it's time uh, when, you know, iPhone 
didn't have had not come out yet and Nokia series 40 and 60 were the real smartphones. Um, so fast forward, I, you know, after that company, I, you know, did some investments and uh, worked with a few startups and then uh, joined a startup in the mobile backend as a service company, uh, which we sold to um, uh, CA, which now is part of Broadcom. Cool. And then um, the last few years, I've been working with various startups and helping them figure out things, helping them scale. And um, and then, you know, I feel personally and I believe in that the entrepreneurship is kind of a way to cure, if you might, a lot of the world problems. Because if, you know, if you create new opportunities for people, whether they are in the form of, you know, jobs and some people making more money, it really creates, you know, a lot of the poverty problems can be solved by having uh, that. So I believe that I need to kind of, you know, in my own ways, help uh, the cause of entrepreneurship, uh, the cause of the entrepreneurs. So I started, uh, I joined an organization whose mission is, uh, fostering entrepreneurship uh, organization called TIE, T-I-E. Uh, so I joined their Silicon Valley chapter and have been mentoring various startups, helping in uh, in that ecosystem. And then, you know, I also teach uh, entrepreneurship at uh, Northeastern and UC Berkeley and um, also part of uh, Google Launchpad and a few other things. And I actually work with a lot of startups as well. Um, both in you know in their board or advisory roles um, um, and helping them kind of figure out both the what i call the art of startup the art of start as well as the art of growth because both of those are hard problems to solve for most companies and you know we have some lessons that we can use uh, to help them fascinating so how do you decide which companies to work with then like because you must get requests all the time especially if you're teaching it so i do get a lot of requests and there is only so many hours in the day because uh you know i decided to uh you know i met this entrepreneur um out of peoria illinois of all places which uh, was fascinating to me one of my mentors introduced me to uh and i looked at the company and i said oh wow you know the technology is amazing. Uh, we built a digital twin technology focused at the supply chain business. And uh, but the company was coming out of services and trying to make a transition into becoming more and more a product company. And so I thought that was an interesting challenge. And so I joined um, about a year and a half ago to said, OK, I'm going to help the company in that transition. And I think we're kind of making uh, some good progress. And I know I didn't answer your question of how I decide. Uh, so I think time, I don't have enough time anymore. So I think one of the things is to see, hey, uh, if I have a previous relationship with an entrepreneur and I know that, you know, uh, uh, I can help and, you know, they know my style and all that, then I, uh, you know, figure out if I can find time because one of the things I tell entrepreneurs a lot of times is that if you're coming to me is I'm not going to give you a, 
you know, sugar-coated stuff and say, yeah, you're doing great. Because if that's what you want to hear, then you don't come and talk to me because I'm going to be critical and I'm going to challenge you to see uh, why your things are not going to work. And I want you to defend it because if you cannot defend it with me, you won't be able to defend it with your investors and you will never get funding. Smart. Well, and to be brutally honest, that's what people need to hear, whether they want to hear it or not, right? But they don't. It's, yeah. it's it, you know, they go to a lot of advisors who just are yes men to them, right? And they, yeah. they part. Um, and I'm like, no, I mean, that's not the value I want to add. I want to challenge you to see if you have really thought through these issues or not. And if you haven't, I want to force you to think about it. No, that, no, I, I think that's super valuable in itself. And if people don't realize that, the sooner you can figure that out as an entrepreneur and know that how astronomically important that is, the better off you'll be, I, I think. Like, the, I wish I would have learned that a lot sooner than I did. You know, you will be surprised out of the 10 entrepreneurs I give this feedback to. I probably don't get more than three calling me back afterwards, right? Wow. Uh, in the sense that, you know, and then sometimes I will encounter somebody who will meet me like a few years later and he say, you know, you told me such and such and I actually did it, <laughs> but I never contacted you. Oh, wow. Why? And, I don't know, but but I did it, but I never told you. And now uh, just that I saw you, I remembered. <laughs> wow. So it's uh, it's interesting. Okay, I really want to dive into Tada in a second, but you mentioned something I want to highlight again. Well, I or a clarification on. So you mentor and teach and have been doing this and been very successful at this for many years now. But you mentioned something that I think is very important is you still have mentors. Did I catch that correctly? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I just wanted to reiterate that for people if they miss that, because I think no matter where you are in your career, having many mentors is very important. And obviously, you would agree with that. Oh, yeah. So why do you think that's so important? And do you have advice to actually get some mentors? Because I think that can be really challenging. So I think what happens is when we are going about in our own things, you know, we kind of lose track of, you know, as they say, separating forests from the trees. Yeah. And so you want somebody else who is not walking in your shoes every day to tell you something is not right. Sure. And that only a good mentor can tell you who, who doesn't, who's not really part of your day to day business. Right, 100%. Any advice for getting them though? Because that can be challenging. Like people like yourself, super busy, want to help, can't help everybody. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I don't think there is, you know, I know that there are many companies that try to create these mentor networks and so on and so forth. Um, none of them really work uh, in any, you know, regular fashion, if you might. So I'll tell you, like in in um, the organization that I mentioned, you know, Thai Silicon Valley, for example, and you know we have a lot of people who are willing to mentor because the whole idea of the organization is if you've done well, you're willing to give back, right? And 
so uh, but you know people are willing to give back and you know they're going through their life in a way so let's say somebody has a one year break between the two different jobs at that time they're very very active and suddenly right. they find a full time position somewhere or start another company and you can get enough hours from them anymore right so it's a it's it's a process and i i don't know because many of the people who try to build these networks they're not really constant and because it is still a volunteer job for most people so they they don't spend the time and you know i think there is a movement in the industry for instead of the mentor the mentor people have come out as coaches um which is which is you know good it's it's if somebody gets paid to do it and therefore they have a reason to do this with you in a way um however there are many coaches who coach something that they have never experienced yeah 100% yeah and so i i just you know when you hire a coach just sort of try to understand hey have they done something have they actually been a part of living through that because it is really important when you go through those emotion ups and downs as a founder and as a you know c level executive in a company you get a very different perspective than somebody who just reads a book no i couldn't agree with you more so that i think that's a good segue into your role as chief revenue officer at tada so what made you well you quickly talked about it but what do you do at the company and what exactly is tada so you know tada as a company started out um in the supply chain management consulting so the okay. company was in a business for a number of years and then the founder said hey you know what we we go into different uh customers and we keep on doing the same thing again and again and uh, there has to be a better way you know we could use technology to solve that problem as opposed to adding more and more people and so that's kind of when he started to work on a platform to develop um and and so the the platform really came to be like you have a lot of you know data data everywhere not a single insight to use yeah and so that was the sort of the core premise that hey just having data alone isn't sufficient you got to you got to create the magic out of data which allows a person on the shop floor to do his job or her job a person in the supply chain executive to be able to look at what is happening uh, a person on the logistics side to be able to see what inventory is there in their system and how do they optimize and you know improve so all of those things were kind of needed if you might and sure. so so that's all of those problems we were trying to solve with the technology as opposed to the brute force of you know let's add more people let's add more people or let's add just technology for the sake of adding technology right right so i think our goal as a company was hey all this data everywhere in the supply chain business is there but if you had the right data at the right time to the right people you could make some really good decisions and so the data 
you know, how do I bring that magic of data to you? And sure. when you say tada, the word magic comes up. So that's how the word tada came in. Cool. And then when I came into the company, I said, what differentiates us? A lot of people say they can <clears throat> create magic from data. Sure. And then in all the conversation, there was one common theme that emerged. And that was, you can get the magic of data from somebody else if you give them two, three years. Uh, but we give you the magic of data in weeks or days as opposed to months and years. So I said, oh, that means let's add the word now. And that's where we added up with our new sort of website moniker and everything, which is tadanow.com. Okay, so how are you doing that so much quicker than your competition? I guess without giving away your kind of secret sauce. So I think it's a good question. So, so I think there was a basic uh, premise that we used, which was slightly different than what most of the industry was stuck on. Okay. Because you have to look at the problem in a different way. If you keep on looking at the problem in the same way, doing more of it, you're not going to get any better. You're going to get incremental improvements and then you max out. Right. So the industry is kind of trying to solve this problem by having, uh, you know, building a data model first and data models keep on changing, you know, things keep evolving. And so they're always in this constant flux of trying to change. Right. So instead, we start with building what we call more like a digital twin of the organization, of the supply chain. So we model every, person in the chain, every product in the chain, every, you know, warehouse, factory, all of those are modeled as like, we create a digital twin of each of those. Okay. And then we connect all these personas into a large network. And none of those seem to change from one industry to, uh, you know, from one company to another, very minor change occurs between two companies, the business, you know, manufacturers work, the same way a healthcare uh, hospital system works the same way and so on. So once you build that model, uh, then put the data around it, it's much easier to look at all the changes. And because we build this, what we call data fabric, where we take the data from everywhere and bring it together. So you are able to now connect all these systems together. And now it's easy for you to you know, take our no-code platform, you can build any kind of applications for any persona that you need to have because you have access to this data from everywhere and it is brought together for you. And because you built kind of the digital twin model, uh, which we call digital duplicate. So you are able to actually you know, look at, run at what, what if scenarios you have digitized the whole operation. So you are able to do a lot more uh, than you could do with any other system. Okay, so walk me through, like, okay, I'm onboarding my healthcare startup or my financial company or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Walk me through, how do I get started? And then how does that tie into no code? Because I mm -hmm. think that's where one of the real most powerful things that I think some people know about, but I think is really, coming to be and people kind of expect these days 
So I think first of all, so my first job was to figure out which industries we're going to go after and which ones we're not going to. Okay. At least in phase one. Okay. So in the phase one, we are going after manufacturing okay. companies. Anybody who is doing discrete manufacturing and CPG and a little bit of retail. Okay. And then we added hospital systems into the mix. Okay. So we don't go after FinTech and other areas at this point. Okay. Um, so then the question is, okay, so what is the process that we come up with? So we've built some off-the-shelf solutions that you can start plugging in because we built the industry models for a manufacturer. So we built the digital twin of a manufacturing system all the way from start to finish. And once we take your inputs, we can give you that output through our system. And we also built a whole no-code environment where, so if, for example, you want to do something with SAP or even with Salesforce sometimes, you can't really write any extensions and make changes without having to write some software code. Totally, yep. And so in our system, we wanted to sort of get away from it and build a model where you can, once you are trained, you can do point and click and you can build something. The tool set is very much already there and it just walks you through a bunch of menus and then you can create an application. Fascinating. Okay. So like that to me is the future of kind of a SaaS business is allowing your customers to basically build their own little applications inside of your application. Do you, do you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts around that? So I think um, I would say that probably the manufacturing sector isn't quite ready for it today. No. Okay. Interesting. Because, you know, most of the manufacturing companies don't have a very large IT staff. Ah, okay. And even though you don't need an IT staff to develop applications, but I think in manufacturing, uh, you know, a lot of people have been there for a very long time. Okay. The, the younger generation hasn't yet adopted the manufacturing as a career. Okay. Uh, it is coming, but it has not yet happened in a large scale. Okay. And so a lot of times, you know, they're looking for, I want a solution. Ah. Just give me something that works. And then as I get comfortable, yes, I will continue to customize. I will add more things, but I don't want to be in the software development business, even if it's a no code. Got it. Okay. Fascinating. So then, but then you mentioned this to me earlier is there's a ton of opportunities in this space then. And, and, Fair to say? Actually, it is. And I'm actually fascinated because to be very frank, I've never worked in manufacturing before. Okay. All of my startups focused on different areas. You know, I've focused on telecom. I've focused on, uh, you know, uh, the IT side of the house. But this was the first time I started to look towards the manufacturing side, even though I've been advising a couple of startups that have been working in this area. Um, so it was fascinating to see that there are a lot of differences in, in that sense. Um, but the, you know, with the supply chain challenges that everybody saw where, you know, 
uh, if I had used the word supply chain maybe three, four years ago, people would have said, well, what do you mean? And today, you know, uh, every politician uses the word supply chain and, uh, you know, every day you hear maybe at least 100 articles written with the word supply chain in them, right? Right. So it became a household name because everybody kind of experienced when supply chain is not right, this is what happens to me. Right. And, but I think there are more deeper reasons why supply chain is going to continue to grow because uh, to some extent, manufacturing industry uh, is probably not at the leading edge of this thing. So it, it didn't digitize faster than other industries or maybe not even at the same rate. Right. So there is an opportunity, which I think COVID kind of woke people up, both sure. COVID and the post-COVID and, you know, political situations and everything else just sort of brought a new focus to this whole supply chain manufacturing things. And so I think my feeling is that this is going to bring in a lot of new opportunities for the young folks who are entering the you know the work area now uh something that was sort of on a decline and it is going to go up interesting so for people that are maybe looking to get into the space what do you suggest or what advice do you give to them because if the industry's had a kind of a challenge maybe recruiting younger people how do you get younger people into the actual space so they can leverage the data and the technology that you guys are building. Yeah, I mean, obviously we are hiring, so uh, <laughs> probably always a good place to start. Uh, but, you know, I think um, we're seeing a lot of people looking for, uh, you know, a lot of young folks to join um, in the manufacturing supply chain side of the house. And I think the part that the, the, the younger generation hasn't been interested in it um, but not realizing that because of the change of digitization that is happening in this industry at this time, uh, the opportunities to sort of make a difference, to learn something new and to contribute is just amazing. And so I would encourage, you know, young people to look at this field just like they look at other fields. Interesting. Okay. So do you maybe give, want to give some examples of kind of maybe some of the stuff that they can do that that maybe would entice them to maybe look into this field? Because I, I think to your point is you're almost at the beginning of this digital revolution in this space, never mind just, I think, in general. So I think it's a data problem in the end, right? Okay, sure. I mean, uh, you know, people are working, you know, any data analytics, data, AI, ML, all those companies are getting a bunch of interest from younger people. So this is the application of data in real life. Sure. And that's what uh, supply chain is all about. Supply chain is really about having the right data at the right time to the right person. And it seems very simple when I say it, but it's a very complex, uh, you know, ecosystem because your supply chain doesn't exist in vacuum. Right. And it has to connect to the ecosystem everywhere. 
And that's why when people build these uh, siloed system, they work really well, but, but it doesn't give you the end-to-end -end visibility uh, and you know the level of collaboration and things that you are need you need to succeed. Well, and I think even just to prove your point is nobody predicted basically any of the things that happened in the last three years, right? Like how many factors have changed everything, right? For pretty much everybody, good, bad, or other, things have changed so much for everybody on the planet in the last three years that, and if you guys can provide a solution that the data is updating live, obviously I need to give you guys good data, but if you're, once you have data and you can start producing that, like to your point is there's really not that many industries that you can actually make that big of a difference instantly almost, right? Is that fair to say? So I think it is fair to say, in fact, let me give you an example. Maybe it's, that'll sure. probably put this in perspective. So we had one of our customers who, who came to us in the early onset of COVID and said, hey, you know, I'm seeing problems that my suppliers from China are not able to deliver. Yeah. Uh, and pretty soon my suppliers from Europe and US and everywhere else. So um, I can't wait. I need to solve this problem now. Uh, okay. Can you guys help me uh, with this digital transformation that we've undertaken? And so we went in and we worked with them for weeks uh, at a time and solved this problem. So the end result was that most of their competitors missed out the forecast and couldn't build enough products. Ah. But they were able to build the product that they had put in their forecast and met the targets. I see. Interesting. So that's the difference, right? So the, yeah. the CEO now can go in in front of Wall Street and be proud of what the, his team has accomplished versus having to go in and saying, oh, I got, I got excuses because I just meet, didn't meet my numbers. Yeah. Fascinating. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I think um, an example of probably, and I know they, they have challenges, but like Apple seems to be a good example of that as well, yeah. right? Where other Absolutely. tech companies have, you know, not been able to produce product, but I can still go get an iPhone or a MacBook pretty easily these days. It might not be the exact version I want today. Might have to wait a few weeks or a month or two, but for the most part, I think they've done very good at what you just outlined. Agreed? Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, this is, uh, uh, um, thanks for bringing that up because, you know, one of the things I was at a conference, um, um, Tycon, and there was this comment that came up, which was that, hey, you know, we need to see some successes of supply chain, uh, bringing out, uh, you know, supply chain people. And I said, well, you know, you got a CEO who came from the supply chain business, and that's the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. And that's Apple. Sure. So how much more do you want to see? I mean, he's done an amazing job after yeah. coming from the ranks of being a supply chain leader in Apple. Yeah. 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 Like you can't argue with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> no interesting no uh no that i think that's that's really good but sadly we are out of time i feel like we could probably go for another hour 
But how about we close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Tada, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. I think there's only one link I'll give you, tadanow.com. And you can find anything and everything about us, about me, about anything else. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to connect uh, with me, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, you can find me as R. Paul Singh. And so, uh, uh, again, uh, I want to thank you, Kevin, for giving us this opportunity. And I'll just say that, uh, you know, supply chain is uh, happening. It's the right time to, you know, leverage that market for everyone. And uh, I think the future is in digitizing the supply chains and, you know, uh, major changes in how supply chain was done versus how it will be done in the next five years. And so therefore the opportunities are plenty. No, I a hundred percent agree with you, but Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.